0: i Na mottaasa hakawato Arato samma sam buddha sap namota sap hakawato ato sum sam buddha sap namota sap I'd like to begin by uh, expressing how uh, delighted I am after three months of not having uh, gatherings together here in the temple, having this uh, occasion of Lumpur uh, birth anniversary uh, to uh, come together. The, the epidemic has uh, sort of waned to the degree where we felt it was safe enough to gather at least for one evening <laughs> to, um, to, uh, to consider the viral load, um, and, uh, to make a special occasion, uh, for today. So I'm delighted that this has come together. Just all, um, <clears throat> being together in the temple and chanting, um, uh, with uh, several dozen people, 50, 60 people this, uh, a uh, delightful, inspiring, gladdening feeling once again. So very, very happy to have this uh, occasion. Uh, also, particularly to reflect upon the uh, the life, the teachings, the example of uh, Venerable Ajahn Chah, our teacher, and to um, take this occasion of his birth anniversary to to uh, to look at his um, his legacy. What, uh, in a way. Uh, has brought us here through his uh, his life, his practice, his teaching, and the, the influence that uh, had upon uh, Lompo Sumedho and so many other people over the years, and Lompo establishing this monastery more than 35 years ago. Um, and uh, uh, that's literally why we are here. You know, we, we would not be here, gathered together, this particular group of people in this spot, were it not for Lumpur Cha's life and his teaching and his example, his influence um, uh, on the world. In terms of his life, um, uh, looking back to uh, uh, Ubon province a hundred years ago, uh, I remember seeing a, a it's a kind of a documentary, also fictionalized documentary film that's called Chang, which means elephant. And it was made in 1927 in Northeast Thailand. And um, it's, a, it, uh, uh, it's a snapshot, it's like a, a, fil- a little film, but it gives you a snapshot into life in the Isan in Northeast Thailand in those days. And uh, quite uh, remarkable, uh, the the kind of family life, the, the world that Lumpur Chah, uh, was born into. He was one of, uh, I believe, nine children in a, a family in uh, Bangor, a small village in the, the province of Ubon. In those days, the Isan, the northeast of, of Thailand, it considered itself in a way more part of laos than than thailand legally it was part of thailand but the culture and the language was far more laotian and um, and also in those days it was before the the railway line had been built between uh, central thailand bangkok and and the northeast so it, it really was a different world and um the uh, the idea of uh, electricity or running water was, uh, there probably weren't even words for it <laughs> in the in the local dialects. it was uh, uh, something that you you, know, you might have heard of in a story or a rumor but there was uh, uh, the life in the village itself was very much subsistence farming and and also everyone helping each other yeah, life was tough the cold seasons are cold the hot seasons are very hot the rainy season, uh, very, very wet, very rainy. And and they often say that it's one of the reasons why such a spirit of, of camaraderie, of cooperation exists in the Northeast Thai culture is that, you know, you have to help each other out, otherwise, you don't survive. And so that the, that kind of co- cooperation and that uh, spirit of working together that came through, not just uh, from uh, Ajahn Chah's. Uh, conditioning as a child but also it became a a a, um, a style of practice a, a very uh, informing influence in the way that he he uh, established his monasteries and the, and the way we like to to run uh, Amravati uh, down to today he was born in 1918, so 102 years ago on this uh, this day. They're not exactly sure uh, precisely the day. It might have been June the 17th or 16th or 15th or 18th, but somewhere in this period, in the middle of June, 102 years ago, he was uh, born. And uh, the the stories of of his life, as probably many of you are, are familiar with, was that uh, even as a small child. He was uh, a natural leader, and that uh, uh, the people who grew up with him, even his uh, his fellow uh, brothers and sisters, uh, made the comments that uh, games were always much better when when uh, Cha was around. If he was if he was part of it, then it, it, it was somehow it would always be more fun, and he would often be the the leader or the instigator or the the person kind of. Um, motivating the the particular games or activities that people were uh, were uh, engaged in as a group of children the story goes that at the age of 9 uh, he asked if he could go and live in the monastery he um uh, yeah, it, uh, he had his own motivation to, to go and to be a, what they call a dekwat, or a, a child of the monastery. And uh, often it's the, the parents who would send uh, a boy off into the, the monastery, particularly if he's very uh, difficult, or boisterous, or challenging, or mischievous, you know, badly behaved. They would sort of send him off to the monastery to get, uh, get straightened out a bit and so it's usually the parents that would be encouraging a, a child to go into the monastery for some time but uh, very unusually it was his own uh, motivation his own interest that took him into the monastery at, at the age of nine and so he uh, lived in the monastery as a as a dequat, so he'd just be living on the eight precepts uh, initially and then uh, after a time he took the the novice precepts uh, to become a samanera and uh, and then uh stayed in the monastery throughout most of his teens when he was 16 then um uh, again as the the biography recounts uh, he was um uh, say not exactly encouraged, but the circumstances came together whereby he, he left the, the monastic life. And interestingly enough, it was because his Ajahn, the, the monk who was his teacher at the monastery, was keen on his elder sister, and so that uh, this monk would go and visit the, um, the Chuangchot family, and the young um, novice Cha or Ng, uh, uh Nian Ng, which means bullfrog, would go along uh, to accompany the Ajahn and uh, he thought he was just being taken along because he was it was his family they were visiting but um, he didn't at that that tender age he didn't notice the chemistry between his Ajahn and his elder sister but uh, after a a, a certain amount of time then the Ajahn announced that he was going to be leaving the robes and was proposing to Ajahn Chah's elder sister and um, so that um, surprise in his life then led him out of the robes and so from 16 to 20 then he um, uh, he went back to lay life and was helping out with the farming the land and um, but then when he was 20 uh, being very dissatisfied with with family life and the the round of simply attending the crops and um have seen the limitations of worldly goals that were ahead of him, even though he was very competent, very, uh, he was very much at ease with, with people, uh, and very at home in the village, there was a dissatisfaction there. And so he asked uh, to go back in, into the monastery. And again, particularly because um, of circumstances uh, in terms of relationships, his um, uh, he had a a, a a a young woman in the village that, that he and she were very keen on each other and um so it was thought that maybe one day they would be able to get married but then uh because of the circumstances of of the uh, the the village and her life then uh, she ended up being betrothed to his best friend and uh, as Ajahn recounts very very poignantly in the, the um, uh, biography of Lumpur Chah, Stillness Flowing. Uh, uh, his best friend, uh, Put, had to uh, say to him one day, "Char, um, uh, I'm, I'm taking the girl. You know, that's the uh, the way it's been arranged. Our parents have set it up. And I think she was like a, a cousin or a a relative of his, so that uh, by the two of them, uh, Jai and, and Put, being uh, betrothed to each other, being engaged to each other, then the, the family wouldn't have to pay a dowry. They wouldn't have to. There wouldn't be any expense. So that was a real heartbreaker for the young uh, young char in the village. His best friend and his and his beloved getting married to each other. So that p- propelled him back into the monastery. Um, the dukkha of the world being extremely visible, tangible, and felt. So. Uh, uh, there was a, a, a combination and and he would talk quite freely about these these kind of circumstances in his dhamma talks and how you know it wasn't sort of the uh, any kind of high-minded aspiration to realize nibbana or he didn't have much of a, a of a um a kind of um spiritual motivation based around meditation at that time it was just really the, the dukkha of the world i <laughs> it was dukkha idang dukkha this is dukkha the 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 unsatisfactoriness of the world was the uh, pro- the empowering or pro- propelling force that uh, took him into the monastery but then as he he went back in again on his own motivation then uh, the the presence of the, the teachings and the, the power of the practice. Even though he wasn't uh, doing uh, uh, very much meditation at all, the teachings really sank in a great deal and were very meaningful to him. And uh, the uh, even though many of the other um, young people of his age coming into the monastery for a, a period of time uh, just stayed for a rains retreat or a year and then went back to, to family life, when all his friends were disrobing, he had this feeling: "Well, why are they doing that? Or what's what's really there on the um, on the outside?" I'm much more interested to stay in the monastery. So uh, he he stayed with it, and then um, again, it was a the painful experience of his father's death that then sort of triggered the uh, the, the next phase of his life. So that he uh, is living in the village monastery, he was, had already been a monk for six or seven years. he was quite well experienced he was, had the responsibility for training the the younger uh, say novices and people uh, who were coming to the monastery to to learn to study and uh, and then his father became seriously ill, and in that death process of his father, who he was very close to this his sense of uh, having no spiritual resources no spiritual foundation was was very powerful to him he had no place to put that dukkha it was incredibly uh, heartbreaking painful to see his father fading and and dying before him and there's nothing he could do and and nothing he could do with his mind to to work with that and so that that really um brought the the say the 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 kind of Contrast home to him of like well i 'm living as a buddhist monk i'm explaining these teachings, I'm talking about meditation i'm talking about understanding suffering, but i don't understand it at all i don't know how to meditate at all and uh, and really i'm I'm talking about all of this It's like uh working in a working in a kitchen and you're you're preparing food you're you're working with food all the time, but you never eat you know you're living around all this food and yeah, and and you're never being nourished by it. So that uh, with his father's death, and then also his father's deathbed request to him to to never leave the robes, then that propelled him out into the um, uh, say the the bigger world, the broader world, and to seek meditation guidance. So at, at about seven reigns, he left his village monastery, and then started to wander. And he met various teachers like Lumpur Kineri, uh, Lumpur Tongrat, and uh, became a forest monk and started to learn meditation. And then, again, his, his spiritual life took on a, a, a whole uh, extra layer, a whole different dimension of, of value. And uh, his sincerity and his commitment, his energy in the practice was was extremely powerful, extremely extremely strong and that uh, uh, he was very, very dedicated. So, uh, eventually uh, he uh, met uh, Lumpur Man, uh, Venerable Achan Man, um, uh, shortly before Achan Man passed away and uh, spent just a, a, a very short time in his monastery. Uh, Achan Man was from the Dhammayut Nikai or the Dhammayut lineage. Uh, Lumpur Cha was from the, the Mahanikai, two, two separate lineages and so that uh, uh, the experience of being with, with venerable achan man as a great meditation master an enlightened being and a you know, very i say gifted expounder of the dhamma had an enormously powerful effect upon upon Chah. and he asked uh, venerable achan man you know, should i change from being a mahanikai monk to being a dhammayut monk you know, should i sort of disrobe and reordain to, to be with you. And then famously, at least within our community, famously uh, Venerable Ajahn Man said, no they need, you don't need to change, they need good monks in the Mahanikai also. And so that had a, a very potent and formative effect on on, on because most forest monks, most meditation uh, communities were in the Dhammiyut lineage in those days and more of the village monasteries, town monasteries, were, were mostly Mahanikai. So, to cut a long story short, then uh, that three-day stay with, uh, with Puman had a very potent impact on him. And then he um, uh, say was invigorated and committed himself even more strongly and completely to to the practice. Uh, people started to gather around. We, uh, other monks, novices wanted to to learn from him. By this time, and uh, uh, I think it was 1953. He it was the first time he actually agreed to to teach. And uh, he and a, a group of uh, half a dozen other uh, monks and novices came together, not at Wat but at a different place and he uh, had his first uh, time in, in the role of teacher uh, and had a rains retreat uh, with this, this group of uh, monks and novices. The, uh, the, the, the account of the routine that he established gives you a sense of his um, rigor, uh, that there was an uh, all-night sitting every night, uh, non-negotiable, and uh, so every every single night was meditation all night long. Um, and uh, the uh, the last month of the rains was n- uh, not just an all-night meditation every night, but an all-night meditation and no one was allowed to move. You weren't allowed to, take, to change posture all night long. So effectively a sort of 10 hours sitting every night for a month. There, nobody died everyone physically survived but i think uh, the the story goes that uh, uh, he uh, he came to the conclusion that was a bit strong <laughs> that uh, that was maybe a, a, a bit too demanding and so that uh, he was when um, he uh, established Wabapong the next year then he he'd never had quite the same kind of um, intensity of routine But what happened was that uh, when they were gathered there, then a little delegation from his uh, home village, Bangor, came to see him and they said, well, uh, we understand that you're now taking on students and we wish uh, to invite you to come back to your home village and to establish a monastery so that uh, you can be of benefit to your own family, to the people you grew up with and to the the people of our area. So that's how Wat Bapong began, on the invitation of, of uh, his mother and other uh, villagers from Bangor. That was in 1954. So since that time till uh, till today, people um, uh, have uh, drawn close. They drew close to him as as a teacher, and he was very active, establishing the monastery routine and being available as a teacher. And uh, very uh, uh, very quickly, uh, people in other places around Ubon Province and the area um wanted to be his students, wanted to have monasteries nearby, and so little branches started to grow up. The first one was um, Lumpurthian, uh, in, uh, in also in Ubon Province, uh, that was the first branch. And then uh, uh, Lumpurjans Monastery at Bunkalung started up. Boppananashat is the 19th, and that, that was begun in 1975. I don't know what number Amaravati is, but the, I think the total is about three hundred and fifty something now. The um, in terms of, of Lumpur's legacy, I think one of the, the things that was, um, I say, in the uh, contained in the readings I gave this morning was how uh, he tried to emphasise the um, the importance, not to just look at him as a as a, a a a leader or as a, an object of reverence or someone to adulate someone to praise and worship, but uh, his effort was always to turn your attention back on, onto yourself, and as he said, you know it's no point you could sleep close to me, you could stay physically close by, but if you 're not practicing, then it 's as if you were far away and that was borrowing that same kind of principle from from the Buddha himself and saying that they uh, essentially don't look at me look at yourself and that even though he was a very uh, uh appealing person very attractive very uh, very inspiring very d- delightful to to be uh, close to if you got too kind of sticky and so oh well, Paul, you're so wonderful you're so wise you know <laughs> and the too kind of gooey in your devotion he would um, make sort of steps to uh, push you away in some fashion, or, or um, send you off to a remote branch monastery, or kind of snarl at you, or make fun of make fun of you in front of all the other sangha members, so that uh, it would kind of cool your cool your ardor. And I, I feel that's an extremely uh, uh, helpful, beneficial quality because uh, the um, the the eye uh, 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 that uh, Lumpur had for 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 uh, you know, what's important in monastic life is always on what actually benefits each individual. He's not trying to have people just behave according to a particular pattern. Not just trying to to replicate his own style, sort of to be a good you know a good Ajahn Chah team uh, monastic, um, but rather to help each person to look more completely and directly at their own uh, at their own life their own mind and to get to know their, their own nature and uh, that he he saw that as a teacher he could be a catalyst he could help people to do that but really uh, the The thing that made the difference was the degree to which each individual was able to know their own mind and to liberate their own mind their own heart and that 's the thing that made made the difference so that if drawing close to him or hearing his teachings or being able to 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 be nearby um, that if that helped then he would support that but if it was someone was too attached or was um, say just trying to replicate you know, uh, the the style that Lumpucha had, even the uh, the kind of the way he would walk, sometimes people would just sort of copy his walk or <laughs> copy the the kind of particular uh, behaviors or the, the, the way he would kind of rub his teeth with the finger sometimes to his false teeth. <laughs> but people would just sort of uh copy his behaviors uh, to sort of to be like him. He would uh, uh, he would always sort of point to that kind of um, copying. saying, yes, yeah, it's, it's based on devotion and interest and faith, but it's not just a matter of copying another person. You have to to know your own heart, know your own mind, know know how uh, how you take what what makes your mind um, work, what affects you. One of the the things also that uh, I reflect upon uh, with with Lumpucha and his his style was that um, he was not looking for a comfortable life, and that uh, one of the things, particularly uh, I guess, this being in the role of abbot, <laughs> there there's a, a a strong tendency in us as human beings that when something is difficult or painful or uncomfortable. Then something in us inclines away from that. I don't want to bother with that. Oh no, I don't have to deal. I don't want to deal with that. Or oh, uh, this is uh, uh, something I don't want to bother with that. Or if, if only we didn't have to deal with this, let's like, say the pandemic. If only we didn't have to have all these restrictions. If only we didn't have this this kind of uh, particular um, project on. If only that the building was finished, then we could. Or if only uh, it was the retreat time, then we could when i didn't have to deal with this particular person's difficulties then it would be uh, things would be peaceful so there's a very strong tendency that we have as human beings to be, to incline away from things that are uh, limiting or that they are painful or they're hard work or they're challenging and uh, in terms of his legacy he very consciously sort of leaned towards uh, the, the the difficult or the painful, and he, I think he yeah, he'd seen so much uh, of a tendency within his own heart to kind of to to run away from difficulty. He would talk about how yeah he he was really good as a meditator you know, when he was in those two dong years from when he was about seven rains to when he was about fifteen rains uh, that that period when he was on his wanderings. Um, the um, uh, the the skill that he had as a meditator was quite uh, was quite profound. You know, he could absorb his mind into bright, clear states, uh, but he he saw that. Um, when there were the occasions when he had to go and live with other, other monastics, he had to go and spend time in a monastery. Then he would get impatient. He would be critical. He'd be complaining about the other monks. He would get uh, upset with how they didn't wear their robes right or they didn't know how to, to, you know, sew their robes properly. They wouldn't, they wouldn't patch them and repair them in, in, a, uh, in an appropriate way. They would leave holes in their robes or, uh, they wouldn't uh, They wouldn't know the chanting, uh, and uh, he saw, being very observant <laughs> and uh, astute, he uh, he saw, it's easy for me to be by myself, I can be uh, alone in, uh, off in the forest or off in the hills, and I can calm my mind, I can focus my mind, but where the challenges are is in dealing with other humans, other people. And he saw that's really where he he needed to learn. He said, "Well, it's just avoiding any kind of friction or difficulty, and just taking refuge in, in being away from people." So that's that's not going to genuinely liberate the heart. If I'm in this business to end dukkha, if I really mean that, then I need to learn how to be with people. <laughs> so it seems that in that period, that that those two long years. That was a a, a a deliberate, conscious choice that that was made in his heart. I need to to move towards that which I don't want to bother with. <laughs> if I uh, if uh, if uh, I follow my impulse of just getting away and not wanting to to deal with these uh, these people or responsibilities or or uh, and these kind of um, frictions, then there there'll always be the, an immaturity. There'll always be a, a uh, a fearfulness or a, a an aversion uh, uh, that vibhavatana wanted to not feel to not be to, to not to not connect so that um uh, it, it seems, and also he would refer to that in his teachings that the the effect of that leaning towards difficulty, that sense of inclining towards you know, friction, difficulty, the the unwanted, the the challenging, he found so much benefit from that. He saw so much wisdom when he sort of let go of his desire to be alone and to not quote unquote not bother. <laughs> uh, he saw so much benefit coming from that, that. Oh, this this really helps. This really makes a difference. This is this is uh, significant. That became a, a style of his own practice, and also what he encouraged in in, in others. And that um, that uh, and I find in the the role that I have, just as an example, in in Amravati, in the role of leadership, there's. Yeah, regularly yeah, you know, things come up so, oh not today, or, I don't want to bother with that, or oh when if this when when this is over it'll be great, or if only I didn't have to bother with this, or if we could only just get that finished, then everything will be and I can almost hear Lumpo Chal's voice, um, or at least I can see the expression on his face kind of <laughs> What are you doing? What are you thinking of? Don't don't run away from that, or don't don't push it away. And so, then following his example, and say, okay, well, uh, let's just bring it on. Uh, uh, rather than trying to escape from it, I will just say, okay, let's uh, let's let's make the most of this. Let's take advantage of this. Let's let's meet it. And in exactly the the, the same way that the effect of that. Uh, readiness to meet with friction and difficulty if it's uh, if it 's met with uh I say a deliberate intention you're you're making that choice to to turn towards it and say okay what 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 have we got here and how, how is this working what's the what's the um the, the challenge here, then amazingly uh, and repeatedly you find that you actually can work with the situation far more effectively and easily than you thought you could. It wasn't so difficult, it wasn't so unbearable, it wasn't such a problem. And uh, and the mind that was saying, is, oh, this is, this is really a, a chore, or this is, a, 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 say, something that is intrinsically dukkha, it's like no, it turns out to be not true at all. It's like, it wasn't the case at all. It's just uh, it was really just the attitude towards it that that uh, was the thing making the difference. So personally, I found that an extraordinarily helpful teaching, and and uh, the kind of things that Cha had to deal with over the years um, they were pretty. Some of them pretty serious. Uh, the um, there was one of his disciples was a hitman who was hired to shoot him. But um, uh, when I when I knew him, he was this very sort of genial and a uh, uh, very. Um, yeah, I was astonished to find out that uh, the way he'd come into the Sangha was he was actually hired as a gangster. That uh, he had been employed to 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 shoot Ajahn Chah. but he'd made the mistake of um, what they call casing the joint too too closely. That uh, he'd been hired to to uh, to bump off Ajahn Chah from um some for some particular reason. <laughs> Not quite sure who hired him, but uh he was trying to work out how to how to make his shot and what would be a good occasion to, to carry out the hit. And he kinda of got too close, so he ended up hearing too many of Lumpur Chow's dhamma talks. And it was sort he of, thought, know, well this, this is kind of interesting. Well maybe next week I'd like to hear a bit more of this before I bump him off, you know. Uh he also in that in that era, you know uh the northeast of thailand ubon province was was kind of bandit country i mean it was very so sort of very much the the wild east rather than the wild west so uh, uh, my understanding is that um, to have somebody killed it wasn't even that expensive uh, it would i think it was 300 baht to hire a hit uh, a hitman to bump somebody off which in those days was a fair amount of money but not a lot <laughs> about 40 baht to the pound so uh, uh you not not a high price on a human life and um so anyway uh, the the, the uh, yeah knowing that um uh, someone is, uh, has has uh, been hired to kill you and at a certain point this uh this monk uh, he was known as porsui he kind of came up to to lumpur as a layman and said, you know i have to make a confession lumpur you know i've been I w- I've been coming to listen to your teachings because I was hired to shoot you." But uh, I've I've changed my mind, and um, can I be your disciple instead? And so uh, uh, so then Lumpur probably said <coughs> or words to that effect,
1: <laughs> and uh,
0: accepted him as a disciple. And then also had to kind of protect him because the the uh, uh, the person who'd hired him was then uh, unhappy about the fact that the contract wasn't being carried out and such like. So I've never had to deal with anything quite like that in my role either here at Amravati or Abhayagiri, <laughs> having a contract killer with with, uh, with my name on their list. Or an, another occasion where um, one of the uh, the senior monks, the head of one of the branch monasteries, was reputedly having an affair with, with a, a local woman. And there was a lot of conflict. Uh, uh, some people thought, no, he's innocent. Other people thought he's guilty. And so it was a huge, uh, issue in, in the Sangha. And, uh, it got to the, to, came to a head. And, and they, they, they said, the only way we can solve this is to get, you know, Lumpur to make a, a judgment. And so these different groups could come to lobby him and, uh, and, uh, and get him to come along. And then they had a, a big meeting at this, this branch monastery. And, uh, and it said that the, the, the abbot who was, um, being accused, that he had a knife in his yam and that uh, it was said, uh, on, I have on good assurance, that uh, he had made the statement, if Lumpur Cha accuses me uh, of, of ha- having sex with this woman, then I'll, I'll, I'll take his life right there on the dhamma seat. I haven't had to deal with that either. <laughs> <laughs> As any of you have never, you know, bread knife in your yam, you are know, thinking of... Uh, Now's the night, tonight's the night, which I highly doubt. So, uh, you yeah, know, he had to deal with some pretty hairy stuff over the years. So, when he's talking about friction, it's not just, you know, someone uh, uh, using um, kind of impolite speech, you know, it's, it's a fairly uh, deep tissue stuff that he, he had to handle. But uh, it was really that kind of, uh, of readiness to, to go and meet even really difficult, challenging situations like that. I feel is, uh, it's very, it's a very helpful example for us, uh, to, to say, not just in terms of our relationships with each other or, or to, uh, conflicts in the community, but also looking at our own minds, the, the area of our own, our own mind, our own life where I don't want to go there. I don't want to look at that. Or that's too difficult. I can't, I can't bear that. Or that's too challenging. That's too painful. Or, ugh, you know, I can't deal with that. To, to recognize that vibhavatana, that, that pushing away, that, that wanting to shut down or, or not, um, not look at various aspects, of particular obsessions or fears or aversions or regrets. Um, particular attachments. And to, to, to take Lumpur Cha's example and say, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> let's, let's look a little bit more closely at that. Let's, let's lean towards it rather than turning away and saying, I can't handle that. I can't, I don't want to deal with that. I, I that's, uh, that's too challenging to take that as a signal. Okay. That's, that's the feeling. Therefore, turn towards it. To bring the attention to that, incline towards that, and say, okay, well, that's interesting, that's a strong reaction. Let's let's look at, at that, let's see what's going on there. And again, I found that extremely helpful in terms of, a, of a, an example, a, a standard to follow. Another of the, the aspects of his uh, teaching uh, that came up in the the uh, the readings uh, today, uh, and uh, uh, I chose them quite uh, quite deliberately. Not uh, a lot of it talking about uncertainty. The the reflection on uh, on manière, uh, it's not a sure thing. Uh, as a mode of practice, is uh, is extremely helpful. And uh, in one of the, the the passages I read this morning. Uh, He makes the the comment, whatever it is that comes up, just turn to it and say, it's not a sure thing. And uh, as he says in that that talk, it's a very simple reflection. It's not complicated, it's not refined, but it's extraordinarily powerful. It it has a a very profound effect, if we remember to apply that. And so uh, in uh, in terms of his legacy or one of the aspects of Dhamma practice, that uh, we can really make use of or, or help to make our lives here at Amravati uh, more effective or to enable this, this the commitments that we've made and the, the, the practice that we, we're following to help that to really bear fruit, Yeah, to moment by moment to apply that reflection on uncertainty. Whenever we're worried about how things are going to be in the future, is it a sure thing? When we're worried about what somebody thinks of us, is it a sure thing? When we're uh, we're, we're worried about what's going to happen to us, how it's going to be for me, am I going to be healthy, am I going to get sick, am I going to get the coronavirus, is it a sure thing? Uh, To look at our opinions, uh, uh, our judgments, oh this is really beautiful, is that a sure thing? This is awful, it's terrible, is that a sure thing? And it's one of those... um, uh, it's a kind of one size fits all practice. <laughs> Regardless of the object, whether it's in terms of your work or your relationships or your mind states, physical objects, uh, everywhere, that's that one single principle applies. If, if the, if you notice that sense of, of, uh, of a thingness, the mind making a, a memory or a, an object or a mind state or a relationship or a, a plan. The mind, the, th- the mind tries to make it solid and uh, and fixed. And if that recollection is brought into being, is that a sure thing? Is that the whole story? Is that true? Is that is that is that a fact? Then over and over and over again it helps to see things in their true light. We see in that moment, there is no thing there. That that opinion of uh, of saying, this is beautiful. Well, it can't be an absolute thing. It's not absolutely beautiful. It's just in this moment, there's the experience of beautiful. (laughs) But that is changing. It can't sustain itself. It it cannot. the calling of something a problem. This is really a problem. It really is a problem. Like, now this is the experience of problematicness arising. And in this moment it feels like this. It's not an absolute problem. It's just that feeling of of problematicness is here now. It arises, it passes away. So uh, uh, I uh, I use this as a, a, a reflection, a way of working with... Uh, the flow of experience, inner and outer, um, all the time. Yeah. It's uh, the uh, so many uh, times during the course of a day when, when I remember, <laughs> it's easy to forget. But uh, uh, it's uh, it's uh, as he as he said in the teaching this morning. It's so simple. It's not complicated. It's not testing but it uh, it has extraordinarily powerful effect. It'll change the way the, remind, the mind relates to every single experience, the way we relate to our physical body, our, uh, our feelings, comfort, discomfort, our health, our, our mind states, our memories, our plans, our emotions, everything. The, the material world, the, the buildings that we're in, the, the conversations that we have, if we remember to apply it, it's a. It's like the. It's like the the escape route. Like on these these doors of the temple, you've got these little uh, fire escape signs with a sort of a running person and an arrow. Like here's the escape, <laughs> you know? and, and if the fire alarm goes off, then the the escapes light up. That's what this uh, uh, Ani Chang, this reflection on uncertainty. It's the fire escape, <laughs> uh, and it's a very effective uh, and well ordered. Uh, uh, uh the fire escape system uh, and if we apply it i uh, i i find it has an extraordinarily transformative e- effect maybe the, the the last thing to to share also this evening and particularly it always comes to mind when talking about Ajahn cha as a person and you know, using his name and his life story and uh the particular characteristics, or you know, say, events of his life, like you know, being uh, being threatened by a hitman and such like, that it's very personal. It's kind of a, it's a story. He was born in 1918 in Ubon in Ban village, and it's it's very personal. It's very fixed and and sort of located. Uh, but uh, the in a way, I feel it's to to fix him as a person, or to sort of just praise that the personhood. Is also slightly missing the point, uh, and, and not just because he he would say, "Don't look at me, look at yourself," but also the way that uh, that we can personalize others, or we, we we personalize what what we are, and that. Uh, he really embodied that quality of being fully alive and engaged and be, being a personality when he needed to. But he was uh, uh, really unattached, f- fully and completely unattached to that, that personality. And uh, the, uh, so they, there is uh, uh, dialogues with him where somebody said, asked him the question, yeah, who is Ajahn Chah? And he said, there is no Ajahn Chah. <laughs> there isn't anything here. Or that they say, "When, how old are you? Do you live here all the time? And he said, I have no age. I don't, I don't live anywhere. So uh, he he's a Buddhist monk and known as an enlightened being. He's incapable of lying. So that uh, when someone says, how old are you? When he says, I have no age, what's the I referring to? Well, what, what is that? What what is that speaking? If someone can't, uh, if someone is incapable of lying, deceiving, and, they, and someone says, "How old are you?" The, where's that coming from? The, where the 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 response is, "I have no age." And uh, to me, it's very like the the dialogue between the Buddha and the Brahmin donor, where the donor sees the footprints of the Buddha in the dust and sees, "Wow, these extraordinary footprints with all these patterns and lines." And he follows the footprints and finds the Buddha sitting under a tree in the forest and is kind of amazed at this radiant, peaceful, serene uh, presence. And then Dona asks the Buddha, you know, are, are you a deva? And the Buddha said, no, I'm not a deva. And then, are you a Brahma god? No, I'm not a Brahma. Uh, you know, are, you, are you a yaka? You know, are you a celestial demon? He said, no. "Are you?" And then he says, are you a human being? And the Buddha says, no. Uh, and then at the end of that, then the Brahmin donor says, "Well, so please, can I ask you, what, you know, what are you?" And then uh, the, the Buddha says, "You know, those those uh, factors whereby I could be known as a Deva, or as a Brahma, or as a human being, they have been abandoned. They've been cut off at the root, made like a palm tree stump, uh, and no more subject to future arising. You can know me as one who is awake, Buddhosmi." Yeah, vadami uh, budhosmi. You can know me as one who is awake, or that which is awake, And that's one of the reasons why we use the word Buddha to describe the, uh, our teacher, this this great being, the the awake. And in a way, it means rather the awakenedness, rather than than the awake person. I would say so that in Ajahn Chah saying, uh, "I have no age. I don't live anywhere." It's exactly that place that it's coming from, that buddho, that that quality of the awake uh, mind. It's the dhamma. Literally, is a it is a dhamma desana. It's the dhamma speaking. Desana means a demonstration of dhamma. So it's a a demonstration, an embodiment of dhamma. It's a dhamma speaking. So it's really the dhamma saying, "I have no age. uh, I don't live anywhere," Uh, and that. In that again, in the readings that uh, I offered this morning, there was over and over again. Nampuchar was saying, yeah, "The Buddha is alive. The Buddha, the, the Buddha is that awake, aware quality. That Buddha is that knowing aspect, that attribute of our own jitta." He said, "If you, if the, if you practice, if you embody the Dhamma, then you will be a Buddha. You will be the, the Buddha. You will be that awake, aware quality." And not speaking about that in some kind of inflated or egotistical way, like, oh, yeah, I'm, uh, if, if I'm mindful, then I'll be the Buddha. And so sort of carrying it around like a, a, a flag or sort of a, a badge or a, a t-shirt with you look at me, I'm a Buddha uh, written on it. Uh, not at all. It's, uh, as he said again in one of the talks, you just uh, take the idea, uh, uh, I'm the Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha, they are in my mind. Just carrying it around as an idea is not it. <laughs> You take the idea to lead into that realization of that quality. But uh, I feel that, that one of the, the most wonderful, um, say, uh, legacies, the, the things that we have inherited or, or we have received from Lumpo, Lumpo Cha's style of practice is that, uh, that uh, uh, it's an encouragement. To to embody that same quality, to be that awake aware quality, and that not just copying his e- example, but uh, in a sense being the same uh, the same body, being uh, recognizing that same nature as an attribute of our own heart, uh, not just sort of copying the style from the outside or carrying around an idea or being I um, belong to the Ajahn Chah team you know, like a kind of uh, a uh, like a, f- a football team that you support but rather in that moment where the heart genuinely uh, embodies that awake aware quality when the, the the dhamma that that we are is aware of its own nature then in that moment that's the I would say that's the the uh, say the actualization of the the teachings of, of Cha we are in that moment, there's an embodying of the the, the teachings that he spent so many years trying to uh, to impart to, to give to others that what he was aiming to convey. And uh, the the best way of revering the teacher is to to follow the teacher's instruction. Uh, again, as the, the the Buddha said to uh, Ananda when the, uh, the the Buddha was lying under the sala trees at uh, Kusinara, uh, the, close to the uh, the completion of his life, uh, uh, the parinibbana, and uh, there was there was a mandarava blossom, celestial flowers were raining down from the sky, and there was. The Gandavas, the celestial musicians, were filling the forest with this extraordinary deva music. And and Ananda said, this is amazing, this is incredible. Never before has the the Tathagata been so honored, so revered, so venerated. The the Mandarava blossoms are raining down from the sky, all these devas and brahmas have gathered close by, and there's this beautiful celestial music playing, and all these people have come to pay their respects. And uh, the Buddha said, yes, Ananda, never before has the Tathagata been so honored, so revered, uh, so venerated as in this way. But if you really want to revere and venerate and honor the Tathagata, then the best way to do that is to follow the Eightfold Path. <laughs> so that uh, that's uh, so much in keeping with the message that Lumpur Chah was was... Um, they're putting across, and that uh, if we really want to uh, say praise the teacher, then we'll do what he's encouraging. If we, if we want to follow his example, we don't just replicate the way he walks or carries his yam, but we will be that, uh, be that Buddha, that Buddha, that, and not just as a, as copying an idea or carrying an idea around, but truly uh, uh, embodying that awake, aware quality here and now. So, on this auspicious occasion of uh, Lumpur Char's, what would have been his 102nd birthday, um, and uh, say, as a, a, a particularly delightful occasion to gather together in the, the temple uh, this evening uh, for the first time in three months to actually see each other's faces, <laughs> to, to be uh, joining together in, in this time, I, uh, I am very delighted to be able to honor our teacher, uh, uh, that we can gather together and honor Lumpur Cha's life, his, his teachings, and his way of being in this way. And may this uh, this evening be something that encourages us, guides us, and empowers us to, to carry on the practice uh, into the future. Everyone.